You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health podcast series from the Digital Health Council, where we aim to support healthcare innovation by disseminating knowledge of expert leaders at the Royal Society of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Marla Morkin. Welcome back to another episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health podcast series from the Digital Health Council. In today's episode, we spoke with Dr. Simon Eccles, who is the Deputy CEO at NHSX and is National NHS Chief Clinical Information Officer for Health and Care. We spoke about Simon's career journey to date, which has led him to be a clinician who is dedicated to service transformation. We discussed the democratizing of information in healthcare and the future of quality improvement. We answer the question, is transformation in the NHS synonymous with improvement? Dr. Eccles spoke at one of the RSM events earlier in the year, and we look forward to sharing this podcast episode with you guys today. Enjoy. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm Simon Eccles. I'm the, the National Chief Clinical Information Officer for Health and Care. I'm also the Deputy Chief Exec at NHSX, and NHSX is the body setting uh, strategy and direction of our, our digital systems uh, across health and social care. Um, in my occasional part-time, uh, I'm an A&E consultant at St. Thomas's Hospital. And um, so I, I mean, one goes way back. I, I lived and went to school in, in rural Dorset, which was all terribly glorious and had nice round fields and cows and all that sort of loveliness. And then came and read medicine in East London at Whitechapel, which was a bit of a shock. But I, I loved it, actually. The London Hospital Medical College was a really, really friendly place. Uh, to read medicine. I, I graduated there um, back in the in the 90s and then went through standard medical training, um, realising relatively early on that I liked emergency medicine because you never knew what was going to happen next. And it was the job for the short attention span. And in the course of, uh, of my very early training, actually, um, and I still remember it and it's sort of important. I got asked to consent parents of children for cleft lip and palate surgery by a, a tertiary specialist surgeon who used to come once a month to, to the hospital and do these, these amazing ops. And I said, I can't consent them. Um, I don't, don't know what the proceed, you know, what, 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 what the um, ops uh, are. And I got into the most extraordinary trouble for this. I end up hauled up in front of the, the Dean or whatever he was called at, at that stage um, for refusing to consent these parents. Oh gosh. Um, and actually, he and I, I wasn't interesting. I wasn't meaning to be a troublemaker, um, particularly, but he agreed actually that if I had no idea what the op was, I probably wasn't the best person uh, to consent them. And you're probably aware now that nationally you shouldn't consent anyone for a procedure you are not competent to undertake. And it, 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 it slowly led to a lot of changes, but it got me involved in the fact that there's a lot that wasn't right and ought to be better. And slightly once you've started that slippery slope, it's, it's quite hard to stop. And there was the way hospitals work at night and um, the way doctors are wrote and all sorts of other bits and pieces. And, and um, it, I chaired the BMA Junior Doctors Committee for, for a bit, um, which is quite challenging. And because um, we're in the middle of modernising medical careers, which was utterly, it was, a, it was interesting. It started as quite a good concept and went utterly painful and awful. After all of that, um, they were looking for people to help lead digital transformation of healthcare and I'd slightly got this change and transformation um, bug 
by that stage, having worked with the modernization agency. Um, and I was a senior reg. So I've, I've done quite a lot of my training part-time doing other things, um, which in, in those days they were deaneries that um, um, really didn't like. And one of the things I'm committed to, it's a, it's a slight aside, but is trying to create a career path for clinicians to have a real interest in this. Because I think it's, it's very, very hard. And some of the, the best ideas for both clinical care and for the process uh, of care have come from doctors in training, indeed from, from uh, nurses and allied health professionals in, in training who've spotted, do you know what, that could, that could be done better um, and who aren't listened to because of our sometimes both hierarchy and our slightly sort of sausage machine approach that you just get out at the other end. Um, <laughs> And so can we create a, a, a career path for uh, chief clinical information officers? Because the job itself, using the best of digital trans, uh, technology to transform the delivery of healthcare is, is fascinating. In my view, it, it's, it's brilliant. It's really um, the, the most interesting uh, thing going. Um, and to give, you, to give you a flavor of that, um, one only has to look really at uh, finance, uh, retail, at uh, travel to see how um, digital, by which I mean not so much the IT, but the internet and, and, um, and almost the democratization of information has led to some pretty radical changes. So we as consumers of travel or banking um, are now able to kind of know what our advisors know. You know, uh, when I was a kid, uh, um, uh, a holiday involved going to a travel agent who, and uh, glossy brochures, and it was hard work, including other magazines, to try and find the truth behind the pictures of the glossy brochures and whether that was really the sort of holiday you were going to get. And there were whole TV programs dedicated to you know, hotels that turned out to be still under construction when their pictures were, and all that sort of stuff. Now, you spend two minutes on something like TripAdvisor and you kind of know what you're letting yourself in for. Yeah. Um, with all the good and bad that goes with it. But the same in, in, in finance, it doesn't matter what product you're buying, including your basic bank account, you can understand the charges and, and how it's going to work and what it might mean for you and, and the democratization of pensions and so on. And yet in healthcare, by and large, uh, information is not only kept within the healthcare system and not available to patients, to consumers, to the public, um, but also, in fact, isn't really shared within healthcare nearly as well as it should be. Um, so, my uh, one of my one of my relatives um, needing a knee replacement—that's perfectly sensible—but wants to know. Um, the quality of the surgeon she's been recommended. Are they any good at knee replacements? And I can tell you, any clinician, any doc who needs a knee replacement will almost immediately go and ask a few colleagues. Denisius, mm -hmm. Denisius are really good at knowing the, 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 the quality of the surgeons they work with. But you, you ask somebody. Now, actually, particularly in orthopedics, we've made that quality information much more available. You can find out, for example, the total number of a procedure that any surgeon's undertaken mm -hmm. this is this is important powerful stuff 
Um, and it's, if, if one then looks at it from the, I'm sorry, I'm just doing a total stream of consciousness here. I apologize. Ew, it's brilliant. I'll, it's brilliant. I'm sure our listeners are, are enjoying this as much as I am. <laughs> but just, just, sorry, just because I'm slightly on the roll, but just on, on, from within the health service itself, no, I, I've yet to come across a clinician who knowingly wants to provide poor quality care. We don't, none of us do. Mm-hmm. But it's quite hard to know how good you are and how good your service as a whole mm-hmm. is. You may know that you personally are, 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 are fabulous. I, I hope I'm okay. Um, but how good's the thing as a, as a whole? What, what metrics might one use? And then you're in, um, and how to look them up. And we do, we do audits and we do national audits and um, colleges and the Royal Societies all do things. And they come to you six months later or a year later and some poor junior turns them into a poster and presents them at some conference. And it, that's not quality improvement. Yeah. In, in any retailer, they can tell you which products are and aren't selling well in every store on a daily or weekly basis. And we should understand if length of stay, if rates of complication, whatever else, have gone off for any given process. Just one more on that bit while we're doing quality, because I, I think quality is really at the heart of this and it matters so much. We tend to measure things we know we can measure and we know the outputs from them. And clinicians are very wary about metrics and that's quite right. And I've spent my most of my adult life uh, wrestling the joy of the four hour target, which is a very crude beast, but whose overall concept that you shouldn't be hanging around forever in an A&E department is quite valid. And if you see a psychiatry patient who poor thing spent 12, 24 hours in an A&E, you know just how wrong that is. And we, we, we must do better. But take uh, the rogue surgeon Ian Patterson. Uh, the, the breast surgeon who was doing these rather odd mastectomy sparing surgeries, um, unnecessary surgeries and so on, and he's now in jail as a consequence. But one of his colleagues blew the whistle, raised the alarm, said that this didn't seem right. Um, and various things were looked at, particularly the compliance with, with um, some of the college criteria, and it was thought it was sort of okay-ish. When you look now, absolutely with the benefit of, of hindsight and the retrospectoscope is the most powerful instrument in medicine, blah, blah, blah. On any measure you choose, he was an outlier and he was more than two standard deviations from everybody else. The speed of surgery, the size of the samples, which were much, so he's much faster, the samples were much smaller, the edges were positive, uh, at a huge incidence compared to any of his peers, the redos were much more frequent, um, the complaints before, I, I can't remember them all, but there's this huge basket. And if we were in a different industry where you just almost have a, a statistician hidden in the background, somewhere, somewhere in the basement is your pet statistician who's just, just looking at numbers and goes, hang on, on this, on any metric I choose, that individual is two standard deviations away from all their colleagues in a negative. Somebody go and find out what's going on. And how do we semi-automate that process so we're not all slave to individual metrics and trying to chase targets the whole time? But I know, as an A&E clinician, if all the patients I see end up going to see their GP three days later going, I don't feel any better, what the hell was that about? I need to know because I'm getting it wrong. And I, 
that information is known to the health service but it sure as hell isn't known to me sorry there we are total stream Yay, of that's brilliant and thank you so much for sharing all of I've written a few things down here um, but the, the thing is your background has obviously given such a, an array of experience here that really does shape your outlook on things because you know your clinical experience moving moving into the, the policy area I suppose is you've got you touched on three things there the the data concept you know the the concept that you're looking at how we share the data in an appropriate way to be able to improve the service which is point two the service delivery of it how do we enhance the roles the professionals the training the development and and get the service up to where it needs to be to be performing well and and the third one the, the quality improvement right so how do we ensure that we are able to define well whether or not the healthcare services is doing well. Hmm. And are we measuring gimmicks or are we measuring uh, productive data here? And I suppose that's my next question to you, right? We, we touched on before that everyone is doing their own kind of silo small things in hospitals to improve the service. Do you think now with the rollout of more digital services, we're actually gonna be able to improve this and streamline it and do it together rather than individually then? Um, well, I sincerely hope so. Um, so there are there are some initiatives running now to try and do this. Um, GERFT, getting it right first time, is is helping people understand uh, what better looks like elsewhere and giving you a sort of suitable uh, collection of, of, of peers' data to, to to look at. But we also need to look at this at a at a more um, system level. So um, I. Uh, I've tried, I've probably failed actually already, to not use three letter acronyms throughout the whole of this, but, but at an ICS, an integrated care system, which is a posh name for what used to be called an SDP or a Sustainability and Transformation Partnership, which in turn just means a region of the NHS if you chop it into 40 sort of lumps-ish. It's, that is to be fair, a unit of, of DGH referral-ish. Um, the aim, surely, is that we're providing exemplary care at those sorts of measures, at that sort of size. Um, you can try and do it by, by huge regions, the east of England, but it's almost too big if you've got Kings Lynn and Cambridge in there. They're completely different types of organisation. But if you, if you do it at, at, at these ICS or, or one of 40 sort of regions, it, it does make sense. What we are tragically bad at is sharing innovation and best practice and adopting it even if we know about it um, and there I'd like to make it much much easier to find out the ease with which I or my nine-year-old son can find the answer to almost any question on the internet these days is, is, is phenomenal um, it makes homework an a, a infinitely different game. Um, <laughs> but to say, all right, we've, we've seen to have a, a difficult pathway here for skin cancer referrals, um, you know, and they're, and they're presenting to A&E, so they, there's clearly a, a, a problem collectively in our patch. I, I make that one up, by the way. There's nothing wrong with skin cancer referrals, as far as I'm aware, in Lambeth and Southwark. Um, but who's really good at this? And the answer, interestingly, is, is in the West Country, in, in, in Somerset, where they've got an amazing dermatology referral service, 
based on, on photography of the lesion under a clear defined set of circumstances, they get an almost immediate response from the dermatologist. Does this need to be seen face to face? Can this be handled elsewhere? And so the cancers get through and the, the eczema and psoriasis diagnoses can be made by GPs augmented by um, uh, dermatologists and so on and so forth. I, I don't want to um, misrepresent that service, but it's, it's really impressive. And we're seeing best practice for ophthalmology running on a very, very similar basis here. Um, I remember vividly as, a, as an SHO working in a neurology clinic um, where patients were referred faster than they were being seen by me as the junior and, and the neurologist. And there, there were two of us running this clinic on, I can't remember which other one. Um, so the waiting list, which was already close to two years long, was steadily getting longer. Oh, and if you see a neurology referral at two years, it is a pointless exercise. Mm -hmm. Either they can't remember why they were referred, or they've got better, or it's already been fixed by somebody else because it really was something important. There is sort of no point in seeing them at two years. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of other different examples where I suggest to you there are, there are people you know, li listening here who just know that what they're doing at the moment isn't the best way of doing it. And if only somebody would show them what is the best way of doing it, and even better, can you show me how you got there? And, and so as, as well as all other things that get me overexcited about digital technology and computers will make the world better, I'm not completely convinced, but I think they probably will. There's, there's a ton of stuff about sharing brilliant and and then respecting it and understanding it is applicable to the circumstances in in this organization we're dreadful at the not invented here syndrome oh it's a very good idea but that does come from somewhere else um so can, can we do that um then that's before you even get into the world where technology really will make a difference interpretation of images is one of those examples that we're already seeing image interpretation is is now uh, getting there. It is, it is exceeding human ability. If you're asking a relatively specific question. So mammography is a good example. Is there a lesion on this mammogram? And AI is good at that. Um, 3D reconstruction and volume recognition, which you might use in the follow-up of lung lesions, are they getting bigger? So you know the question you want to ask. If you feed those into an algorithm, it's brilliant at it, actually. And then the last category that's particularly good is triage of lesions. So you, you show retinal scans. Um, and essentially, you can set normal at quite a high threshold. So only 50% class as normal, whereas a, a, an ophthalmologist would pass, say, 80% as normal. But that 50% really are boring. <laughs> right, fine. Clear them out. They're just, just almost off, off the back of the machine. You don't even need to know they happen. You do need to alert the ophthalmologist, that their abnormality rate has now gone from 20% to 40%, otherwise they're going to make mistakes. You know, I, I, it seems to be a bad batch. No, it's because we cleared all the normals away. So the, the, there's some real caveats you need to bring to bear. But I think we're on the cusp of medicine transforming. Just while I'm on that subject, because um, I've got myself going, um, the, the other really interesting technology in the AI sphere is natural language processing. Mm -hmm. um, and at its simplest is voice recognition 
And I, I remain amazed and frankly a bit puzzled that voice recognition hasn't made greater inroads in medicine. So in radiology, it's pretty standard. You dictate all your, all your reports and, and um, one of the dictation officers will pick it up. Well, um, I use my, my iPhone waving around to, to, to um, dictate into, um, and the voice recognition really is pretty, pretty good. Uh, when doing screeds of text. What, an A&E in the, in the north of the country tried this out. Um, and when appropriate hardware and software was brought in, and that's an important caveat, by the way, having one machine in the corner or an inadequate number of, of, of uh, devices isn't going to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. And they need to be integrated to your routine software so you're not then having to grab something and cut and paste it. It's all terribly laborious. When they got it right, they halved the amount of time that the junior docs spent on the data entry part of clerking a patient, wow. which was in turn about half the time. So you went for an hour per patient to 45 minutes or less um, uh, per, per patient-ish. This is fantastic stuff. And in terms of, of satisfaction for your most expensive resource, the human resources, particularly the medical human resources in hospital is phenomenal. And given that in other walks of life, you can manipulate your, your diary, your future instruction set, your reminders, everything by voice off a thing, you know, more powerful than putting man on the moon that's, that, that lives in your pocket doing permanent GPS and all the rest. And yet in a hospital setting, trying to change the timing of a patient's appointment, you, you know, you're going to have to do a sort of big sigh and a deep breath. And then that's, that's good. That's just going to burn your way through 30 or 40 minutes. And I've watched my junior colleagues, um, you know, knowing that they're about to start one of those processes. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what it is. And there's a sort of, okay, so I need to ring this person for permission and then I need to try and find a slot. And then that doesn't, heaven help us that we try and do that in a way that's convenient to the patient, by the way. Mm -hmm. They don't get a look in. But... That's where we, we should be. And I suggest that natural language processing, the ability to talk to the machine in the same way you and I are talking now, um, will transform medicine and may potentially lead from that ward round, um, if I caricature it, of the clinician with as many white coats as they can gather, like a <laughs> flock um, behind them. There's nothing wrong with teaching in that respect. That's brilliant but the actual transmission of knowledge in order to enact a service shouldn't be through a Chinese whispers of I pass it to the first person who then writes a garbled version of it down, who hands it to uh, the next professional, you know, from, from, from consultant to junior doctor to nursing colleague or pharmacist who, who then tries to make head or tail of it. That, that should be a seamless direct transmission. And indeed, if we're really getting clever about this, not only does it record it, highlight the relevant factors so this information is coded these i believe are the instructions issued this is the time frame or whatever else it may be it then immediately reflects that back to the first clinician going have i got that right yes and you then know that those instructions are being carried out in real time patients don't go home at five o'clock in the afternoon they start going home at 11 o'clock in the morning our bed crisis looks very different but you need to remove a whole bunch of unnecessary human steps. And then junior doctors are there to learn, not there to carry out scut work. And, and the world changes, hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, I, I'm, 
I mean, there's so much there to, to kind of take in. I suppose the, the question is, with so much to do, what is the NHS's role in this? Because, I mean, how much can a service that is trying its hardest to care for the patients that they've got with the staff that they've got also take part in these in these fantastic but often um tiresome to get through the governance mm. process and bits and pieces like that within the hospitals to actually pull off so how does the nhs and what is the role of the nhs in in, in changing um healthcare in the uk well um so, so the role you know the nhs is 90 something percent of healthcare in the uk um that is a tremendous advantage in that we can bring the power of scale uh, and budget to bear here you know budget of 130 something billion a year or whatever it is we we, we overall spend is, is is phenomenal and there are some real economies as a consequence it brings the amazing ethics of the nhs which for me is the real holy grail the thing we cannot give up that I, as the clinician, have no pecuniary interest in the care of the individual patient in front of me, simply a desire to offer them the best I can. And we cannot lose that. But that those aspects of the NHS are fab. What they can't do is blind us to its shortcomings. Um, and it is, I think, occasionally small c conservative about some of the types of change that other healthcare systems have already made and take for granted. Um, you are absolutely right that that is in the main uh, because people are frankly too busy and because the path to change, even if it's apparent, is too bloody hard. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a problem we've got to fix. So there are outstanding systems uh, out there. People often go and visit Jungspring in, in, in Sweden, or you can go and visit Estonia and you see a properly integrated system in which the technology has been used to ensure that um, social care in, in its widest, by which I include all of sort of health and well-being and family practice in the community and mental health and hospital care are absolutely integrated for the benefit of this of the citizen and it, it it's lovely i mean it's it's just magic stuff and we have everything we need to do that in terms of the building blocks but nevertheless in a divided system in which elements of those businesses are apparently competing my marching into a a, a hospital saying i have good news uh, to, to the chief executive, I can reduce your outpatient numbers by a third with technology. And they go, that drops my outpatient income by a third. Run, run past me how that's good news. Now, it, it, it doesn't work. If you look at it at a system level, it is. Can we deliver the same amount of care or better care for the same number of people with fewer hands-on touch points that require either the clinician to move or the patient to move. And you've seen probably the, the, the extraordinary RCP study into the amount of UK uh, pollution and road traffic caused by the health service alone. We, we can do better here. Um, so we need an enabling environment which allows Fabulous to 
be shared and be taken up and to be rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm, I'm lucky I work in, 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 in my profession, of, sorry, my uh, specialty of emergency medicine. We ask all of our uh, docs to do a transformation project, a change project as part of their fellowship. Uh, they, they have to and they get uh, graded on it. Um, partly because that gives us a huge number of improvement programs running and they're all little little quality improvement programs. some are big actually some are very impressive quality improvement programs but it also means that everyone who becomes a consultant in emergency medicine has baked into them a desire to make things better um, and i think that's fab but what we don't yet have is the ease with which they can make a change so i'm struck i i whether I go into hospital, community practice, um, uh, a GP, any clinician I speak to from any professional background will almost immediately give me three ways their lives would be easier if only the bloody tech worked. Can instantly, but they feel disempowered from making those changes or, or enabling those changes. Um, and that's, that's the bit to fix. The enthusiasm for it is there actually, but can we sweep away the inhibitors. And I and I really like what you said about transformation programs and that being a part of, you know, the expectation of the professionals that are working within the system. Because I mean my question for you is, does transformation and digital transformation specifically, is it always synonymous with improvement? Um, uh, well, sad, <laughs> sadly the answer is no, and that's a very, very important bit of learning. Um, the, the one of the well-known examples from um, Cedar Sinai, and we're going we're going back a, um, a, a long time, but it's still relevant of uh, the introduction of digital um, prescribing and digital dispensing of medicines, uh, which was done with a uh, electronic cart. Those carts are now widespread throughout the, the the U.S. Barcode reading, so you've got a barcode on the patient's wrist, and you've got a barcode on individual medicines. Each tablet is wrapped in a in a bubble pack with a barcode. And so you barcode scan the patient, it comes up with a prescription list, it opens the relevant drawers, and then you barcode scan each medicine. So you sort of can't get any dispensing errors. But the cart's really heavy. And the carpet in the patient's room is quite thick, this is the US, with a, with a tread thing. And you can't really bump the cart over the carpet to get to the patient to scan their barcode. So you print out a full set of the patient wristbands and you tape them to the front of the cart. Oh, and instead yeah. of going and scanning the patient, you just scan. Now, you can spot when, what went wrong here. The <laughs> medication errors went up rather than down. And I, you know, the, the wonderful medical director responsible who, who's really open and honest about this so they, they came and talked to us about it. Um, and each system change you make has a risk of introducing error. Uh, some of the others we've been dealing with here in, in the UK are when you pile uh, algorithms on top of data collection on top of a system. Um, so we've seen it in uh, some of the systems for calculating um, your CHADVAS risk score, your, your need for um, uh, blood thinning. And if you've got uh, the way that the data is collected to be fed into the algorithm and then the way the algorithm squirts the answer back into a set of software systems multiple different software systems any part of those has a change but not everybody in the whole chain 
understands that there's been a change, it ends up giving erroneous results. Um, and so we need, I think, uh, urgently, and we're, um, uh, we're working on it, clearer standards for, for some of the basic data concepts in the NHS. When any change is made, you need to establish what the baseline was and where you're going with it. Um, so as we digitize systems, we get better at identifying error. And we may therefore know who has been harmed by the omission of data transfer or by mistake, which may say, well, this system is clearly worse. But if you don't know what your baseline error rate was in your manual processes, where it was very hard to apportion blame and to understand what had caused that, you, you, you may not be comparing like with, with like. And that any introduction of a change needs an evaluation process. Um, and ideally is iterative. So we are now moving our digital change programs, our digital transformation programs, from uh, their previous uh, waterfall methodology. Um, sorry, what I mean by that is the a traditional change program uh, run with the joy that is Prince to program management uh, would involve constructing a business case and then uh, start, starting the process. And you have described stages with gates between them. Has it, have we completed the development phase? Yes. Have we completed the build phase? Yes. Have we completed the implementation phase? Yes. Have we, are we now in the live service phase? Whatever else. Dum, 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 dum. Uh, over a number of years. Uh, in some cases, and if I, if I caricature it, leading to a group of clinicians identifying a problem. Whoa, this needs fixing. Fine. In comes the IT guys. Cons uh, listen a lot. Write it all down in many Excel spreadsheets. Take it away for uh, a couple of years and, and build a thing. And then bring back the thing. All the people who suggested the original idea have gone. They've moved on. And a new bunch of people go, what is that? <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what it is or what problem it's trying to fix. I'm, I'm deliberately being facetious. The new method of doing stuff and it's nothing to do with healthcare, this is just uh, um, you know, international now as, as best practice, is a much more agile approach. And I'm saying agile with a small A, there is also agile with a big A, um, and people who carry degrees as scrum masters and things, which is, is all slightly excitable. But the agile methodology is really valid, that says, don't try and describe the end point of a two, three year journey before you've taken the first step. Do you want things to be better? Yes. Have you identified what the problem is? Yes. Have you identified all the people that will be affected by the problem and the change? Think so. Right, get them in a room and start making it better. And every week, and this is, you know, it's a sort of a digital version of a PDSA cycle, if you like, but you just go on a sort of continuous spin of improve, 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 improve. And so by the time people are using it, they know what it is. They know how it works. They, they've got skin in the game. They feel involved. That means that the product you get at the end of that is much more usable and can be transferred to others, subject to not invented here syndrome, um, because it's demonstrably a, a good answer to a problem. And that takes me to, an, to an, a, another little micro uh, uh, rant, which is many of the people listening again, that's all very well, but, the stuff in our organization is, is pretty rubbish. 
and why do I have 12 login codes and why don't the printers work? Um, I'm, I'm just summarizing multiple visits to the NHS. Um, and you're not wrong. So we are doing a piece around single digital identity for staff because I think it's really important. It's just it's just infuriating and that needs to, to stop. Um, I'd love to render the printer redundant. I won't yet. Um, and, and printer drivers seem to be a particular challenge to the NHS, which I don't entirely understand why they're such a challenge. Um, but the core piece there that the software in front of us doesn't seem to work very well is Sadly, is, is right. The software is not bad, actually, in, in, in many cases. And the big EPR systems are, are, are pretty good. The big GP vendor systems are pretty good. But the user interfaces are hard work. Mm -hmm. And we know they're hard work because however good they are once you're really, really used to them, if you pick up a GP and put them in for who's, who's used to the TPP system and put them in front of the EMIS system, or you take a clinician who's used to the Cerner system and you put them in front of the Allscript system and ask them to undertake a relatively straightforward task, rebook Mrs. Smith for a clinic, organize a blood test for, for Mr. Jones, whatever it may be, they will struggle. Mm -hmm. Well, I put it to you in any other setting, if you or I were asked to open an instruction leaflet before using an app or a new piece of software installed on your machine, you go, I'm not, I'm not having that. That's not how it works anymore. My nine-year-old will, you know, during lockdown, had to start doing everything online. So he sits down and he just makes it work. And if it, if it wasn't intuitive, bad things happen. Um, the teachers learned remarkably fast, actually. It's really, really quite impressive to watch. Um, but that's the, the speed of adoption we should be aiming for, that the software is, is much more intuitive and that it carries out the function you expect. Um, and so we've seen all those sort of exception cases in, in, in a number of our software that people think they have completed the process of booking a clinic for Mrs. Smith, but actually because one step was missed somewhere in it, it hasn't worked, but it's not immediately apparent to them. If you or I book a hotel, at the end of it, you kind of know you've succeeded and you get a confirmation note that you've succeeded. How do we build in those checks and balances, intuitive software, clear checks and balances, and a citizen-centric approach that says, right, I think I've booked you a clinic appointment. It should occur, it should ping on your phone before you leave here. If it doesn't, you know, don't, don't go, don't go to the car park, come back and, 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 and let's make it happen. Um, it's a very different world from, from where we are now, and that's where we need to get to. And that vision, I think, is it speaks volumes because a lot of people also share the same vision. In fact, I'd go as far as, you know, most of our listeners want that same future, right? The, the question is, is and I suppose something we can end on really is, what hope can, you know, can we give of the practical steps that are happening in the foreseeable future that um, the healthcare system is really going to see some exciting change? I mean, is there any kind of nuggets that you can share with people about like some things in the future that will really change the way that we'll be doing healthcare in the next few months or so oh uh gosh there's, there's, there's quite a lot in there um <laughs> well you're you're right that that i can talk theoretical loveliness in time blue in the face it doesn't matter if it's not actually making things better um coronavirus uh whilst uh hideous process and leading to significant loss of life, particularly uh, amongst um, 
NHS uh, and other key worker staff, and that's that's awful, has generated a real drive to a change in the way we practice um, that is of benefit and shouldn't be lost as we um, and well, we've got to deal with a probable second wave first, but as we as we return to um, traditional models of, of, of care, I don't want to lose the good things that have come out of this. And we've enabled much more remote consultation, by which I mean either that the citizen stays at home, the patient's at home, and that doesn't work for every consultation. I don't want to pretend for a minute it does, but it does work for some, particularly where the two know each other. Um, <coughs> or conversely, it allows the clinician to be at home and still be working productively, including in many cases actually seeing patients, um, but it may well be catching up on, on uh, administrative uh, uh, and other tasks. And so the, the demand that everybody has to go in five days a week to their, their organisational building, I think has, has changed. And that's, that's good news. That's going to make life easier. I think it's going to make life easier, particularly for those who are juggling caring commitments, um, whether to, to elderly relatives or to children. And that's very positive if we can get that and allow a much more flexible approach to our workforce. Um, with regard to, to um, those remote consultations, we then get to the second element of the enabling stuff around the edge, the ability to see blood tests no matter where they were taken, the ability to prescribe remotely for a patient. They're not quite there yet, but bloody hell are we working hard to try and get them there um, because there is central underpinnings to this change from the rather traditional model of care, you came to outpatients at a time of our convenience to patient, it was, every, every six months or a year, we'd say to someone, you know, how are things, how have they been? And you go, well, funny enough, it was really bad a couple of months ago, but it's, it's quite a lot better now. I'm glad it's quite a lot better now. See you in six months. It, it, it's not the right model. Whereas patient initiated follow-up, which goes by the brilliant acronym PIFU, by the way, um, oh, I've not heard that one before. That's brilliant. <laughs> patient initiated follow-up. Um, but the concept being, if you're in steady state, you, you may not need a face-to-face -face follow-up. You may want a sort of touch-in, check-in point uh, for a diabetic. I, I need my HbA1c done however often. If you ping that to me on my phone, I'll go and get it done by local pharmacist, local GP. It doesn't matter. I don't have to come into the hospital car park but I need a conversation with clinical nurse specialist, however often. If my parameters are going off, if I'm feeling ill, if I've got an intercurrent illness, if things aren't working, I need, I need follow-up. I don't need it in six months. I need it kind of now. Mm -hmm. And we need the flexibility to offer you that appointment now. In other healthcare settings that have done this, what they found is fewer face-to-face -face appointments, but they're much more timely and as a con consequence, they're much more helpful, they're much richer, they're much more useful. So I'm, I'm hoping that will be one of the really big uh, changes we see. Um, the ready availability of data is the other, um, pa patient notes and so on. So this concept that, that you had a test done by your GP, you had a test done by a neighboring hospital, by the referring hospital, and I can't see it, that's got to end. We, we, we need to stop that. So we have a clear program in place for local healthcare records to be shared in every geography in the country. And then there's a timetable uh, to enable that. And the regions that have done it best, it, it's just routine now. 
And that leads to the next piece of patients shouldn't be strangers. Um, so I think, I think this is terribly important. Um, and that may be from the point of view of their health parameters, if they've got a long-term condition that they want you to understand where they are on that long-term condition journey. And frankly, if you if you've got cancer and you have to explain all over again to someone what's going on, it's, it's pretty disheartening stuff. Um, so we need to stop doing that. But for people with mental health conditions, who at the time of a crisis may not be in the best position to explain everything about themselves, need to have confidence that their care plan, which they've helped produce and which they trust and understand to be right, will be available to everyone who sees them. Right through to the social setting that says, if you're seeing me, there's a cat and a demented granddad at home, who the hell's looking after them? Exactly. And, and um, you know, in, in, the, the phrase I've used before is what you need to know about me. Um, and that may be healthcare, what you need to know about me. It may be the wider context, what you need to know. It may be social factors, what you need to know about me. Fine. But you, you put that in and that needs to be owned by the individual. But with the absolute expectation that if you're seeing me for the first time, you've read that out of courtesy. You, you've, you've, it's, we need to make it easy to get to, but you, you've had an opportunity to read that and you therefore approach them from a position of understanding where they're coming from. Um, you know, longer term, uh, I've, I've touched on some of what I think will, will change, but I hope, I mean, the reason I got into this in the first place is about that concept of equality, that the, the people receiving care are the equals in their care of those providing it um, and that's true in in so many other settings but not yet fully true in, in in medicine and i think it will make the nhs even more precious to people in a way that's that's really constructive i hope well thank you so much for sharing your insights here and i love that we ended it on talking about equality and patient care as well i think that's a lovely way to end it so thank you very much and, and um, i look forward to talking you uh, talking with you again soon i'm sure brilliant thank you marla so much great pleasure thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the royal society of medicine's digital health podcast series from the digital health council if you'd like to learn more about today's speaker, or if you'd like to see some of the events that we have at the RSM, then please go onto the RSM website and you can learn more about how to become a member today. Thanks so much.